The National Museum of Funeral History presents The Final Curtain Never Closes. I'm your host, Genevieve Keeney Vasquez, the President and CEO of the museum. I am joined today by Haley Campbell, author of a very fascinating book that we are carrying here in the museum called All the Living and the Dead. And can that not be more appropriate for our museum? Uh, We educate the living and we care for our dead. Uh, That truly is what our profession is about. But Haley, your book is quite fascinating in that you really dive into all the different professions that actually go into caring for our dead, you know, and I just, I found that so fascinating. Uh, but let, you know, please do tell us a little bit about yourself and um, and your book. And then I have some really interesting facts and some questions for you. I'm glad the book is fascinating because it came from a fascination. Um, when I was a kid, I had lots of questions about death and dead bodies, and I never felt like anyone was giving giving me straightforward answers or any kind of answer that um, satisfied me. It always felt like there was something being dodged or... Um, I went to a Catholic school, so if I got asked quest- if I asked questions there, the priest would tell me about heaven, and I was I wanted to know what happened to dead bodies when we put them in the ground, and everything got a bit more confusing around Easter when Jesus was supposed to have come back from the dead and all of this stuff, and I was like, yeah, but what did he look like? And you're not supposed to ask that. I, I got kicked out of religion class as a little kid for asking questions like that, um, but at home it was seen as kind of normal to have interests and and my dad is a cartoonist and um he was working on a book called from hell which is about the jack the ripper murders so as a kid i was surrounded by crime scene photographs and drawings of these horrific murders and i just remember being really fascinated about you know what was happening i wasn't frightened of them and and they weren't hidden from me at all um, so I wanted to know more about that stuff. And that kind of extended to the actual death industry. When um, when I was 13, a friend of mine drowned. And, um, you know, I just thought it was very strange that at the funeral, she, you know, obviously she wasn't there. She was in the box. But I was kind of distracted through the whole process because I couldn't see her. It was a closed coffin. Um and I just wanted to know what she what she looked like, um, what had happened to her, and who had brought her there. There was this whole mysterious world that was just kind of behind the scenes that I became fascinated by. And I've carried that through my whole life. Um, I became a journalist. And one of the really cool things about being a journalist is you can just exploit your position to go and ask questions about things you, you're personally interested in. And it's taken, taken me to all sorts of places. And, um, you know, the back rooms of museums I find really interesting, like um, the Natural History Museum of London that has, has a giant squid in a back room. There are just all of these fascinating things in the back rooms of museums because museums only have a certain amount of space. Correct. So one of my favorite things was to ask a museum curator, what have you got that you love that you can't put on show. So I did a lot of journalism about that sort of stuff. And I found more and more, I was uh, kind of going down avenues of death. And um, I found 
there was a museum curator who had lots of um, Victorian death masks um, that had been in the collection of a uh, long-dead phrenologist. Um, And they didn't really know what to do with them, so I I wrote a whole piece on them. Um, And then I wanted to write a book about people who work with dead bodies because you know, why not? I wanted to write a book and that was what I was interested in. And I could see that each person had all of these interesting stories behind them in terms of how they came into the job, what they actually do and how it changes them, how they deal with it. So I, I proposed this book and, um, and, uh, and sold it. And then I, I went on this journey to write it. And I had this huge list of people, jobs really, not actual people, that um, I wanted to write about. And uh, it took a long time to find people. And not only find them, but kind of get them to trust me. Because um, you will have seen this, but when people write about death, uh, <laughs> It really irritates me when other people write about death because they do it in a kind of jokey way or a salacious way. And and it's very rare to find something that is factual and beautiful and not patronizing. It's just, here's what happens. Um, And so that's what I wanted to do. But trying to convince people who have been in embalming rooms their whole lives. And whenever they've been written about in newspapers, it's been kind of gross or like a faux horror story kind of thing. They're like, why do you want to talk to me? So that was the, that was the thing I found really hard trying to find the actual people. Um, But I found them and I found these amazing people who, once you got them talking, they were unbelievable. It's like they had all of these stories that, um, you know, no one had asked them about before. So they, they just sort of unloaded in a way that um, was really useful to me as a journalist. And um, I think, well, I hope it's made um, a good book. You know, it's so interesting. I have to highlight some of the things you talked about. You and I are very similar. And, oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that, that jumped out at me in your book, first and foremost, was you were the age seven. And so was I ah. when I first had my introduction to death uh, as a child um, and my curiosity began to um, take take form. I think my main thing was, what does death look like? And I didn't have photos to that were laying around like you did. I, I could only hear about it on the news or something. And so my curiosity began to. Uh, was stirring as to to me is what does death look like? What is this death that they're talking about that I hear about, and why don't they ever show it? They, they'll they'll talk about it, but you don't ever see it. And so it was. It, it took a very long time. I I did not get to see my first dead body until I was um, seventeen, doing a project uh, research paper in high school on professions. Right. And so all of my projects in high school were death related. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, and you know, people, you know, there, there, there's a sense of, you know, being morbid, but then there's this curiosity that's not morbid. It's to me scientific. It's, I wanted to understand what the body went to, went through scientifically, uh, medically, 
uh, right before death, during death, and after death. What does that look like? And and so that was where my curiosity took me, and and I went into the, the medical field uh, to understand the human body. And you know, it's so interesting that you know our paths seem to be quite parallel in that. And yeah. I too was around, you know, I, I began surrounding myself around death. I say my whole life was about death. And uh, and my children, you know, were exposed through my chosen professions. And, uh, and they too, like you as a child growing up, they also were very much exposed to death. Yeah, and we, we can't be the only ones. But when, exactly. you were, when you were seven and you had all of these questions and you were interested in it, how did the adults around you react? Uh, I didn't tell anybody for a long uh-huh. time, uh, but I was always searching. I just remembered searching and searching for a dead body. You know, it was it was my, my curiosity. <laughs> yeah, and like in course, a Stephen, they happen in Stephen King short stories. You know, you yeah. find one, you never find one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so I. It was interesting because back then we didn't have like the 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 access to to stories and to information like we do now. Um, so I was very limited in in my research or my my my. Uh, what do you call it, my, my hunt to try and find, you know, I, I, I didn't find anything until I got older and I started saying, well, maybe I'll, I'll be able to get to see uh, if I start doing paperwork on the professions that work with them, you know. We did the same thing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and so my, my paper was on a corner, on a county corner, oh. and, I, and, I, and I got to go to the county coroner's office because I was doing a research paper on them. And unfortunately, because my mother didn't go, I was under the age of 18. He said, well, I can't let you actually into the lab because I don't have parental permission. However, I can show you photographs. So I was very nervous because I didn't know what I was going to see. And he held a, a Polaroid picture. He took it out of the binder and it kind of fell out of his hands and did a flip. And in that moment, as it was actually flipping, I caught a glimpse of the photo. And I was a little aghast, right? Taken back. I was like, <gasps> a little like that. And then when the photo landed face up, I, I kind of looked at it. And it and unfortunately, somebody had drowned. And they were in the water for several days. So they were very bloated because of the, the, the water. And very dark because of the decomposition. And I just remember that when I looked at it, all of a sudden I became very interested and intrigued. And I was just like, oh my gosh, so this is what death looks like. Hmm. But in that split second, you were aghast because... I was, yes. I find that if we have a little bit of information, not all of the information, that's more frightening to me because your imagination just fills it with information you do have, but from other places like video games or films or whatever you've seen. To me, it's like, you know, when you wake up in the night and you might see like your coat hanging on the back of the door and you go, oh my God, it's some guy. And then you turn the light on and you go, ah, it's just my coat. Yes. It's the little bit of information Information is worse to me than just telling me everything. Once I've got everything, I go, oh, it's just that. Exactly. And, and you know, it's interesting that you point that out because when I uh, was stationed in the army and I was working in, in Germany with the army, uh, they, I became a death reaction team specialist for anyone who died within our, uh, within our theater. And 
there was a child, uh, well, she was a young teenager, and her father was uh, unfortunately dying. And he had an asthma attack, and he unfortunately didn't get to his um, inhaler in time, and he was brain dead, and they had to make the, the decision to uh, take him off of life support. And the mother wanted to protect her from it, you know, and, and said, no, no, you know, you need to stay here. Don't come to the hospital. And I and I, I became the advocate for the children because I said, no, you don't understand. I said, children understand the concept of death as early as the age of two. And they will create their own reality. And sometimes the reality that they create is worse than the real reality of the situation. So I always encourage families that if a child wants to learn if a child wants to be part of, allow them. Don't force it on them because then that's when it becomes scary. Yeah. But if they're curious, allow them because the reality, like you said, it, it's not as frightening as, as how they imagine. You know? Yeah, exactly. So. Um, I have a friend whose um, great-grandfather was in Auschwitz and he, he died about uh, a month and a half ago. And um, there was a big, big funeral here in London and, you know, the, the royals um, came and it was huge. But um, my friend was the only family member who brought the gra- brought his kids, his little, so this would have been like great, great grandkids. Um, everybody else said, oh no, we don't want to bring the kids because they'll be, this will frighten them. And, and my friend you know, phoned me and he said, I feel like I did the right thing. Did I do the right thing? Like based on everything you've found out from the people you've met. And I said, yeah, you based on what I wanted as a kid, you've done the right thing. Yes. Showing them. Yeah, it's a part of life. And, you know, that's one of the things, you know, here at the museum is that I, you know, people will ask me, is, is, should we bring our children? You know, is it family friendly? I said, of course, it's very family friendly. I said, because death is a part of life. And what better way to introduce the concept of death? to your children than coming to a neutral environment like the museum. It opens up the subject matter. It allows them to be curious of the things that they hear on the news or the things that they see on movies or in tele- on television or in the video games. All of that is not real. And so sometimes I feel that the media does an injustice because they desensitize people to death. And then when death actually happens, they're like, whoa, where'd all these emotions come from? Where did all this fear, you know, all of a sudden you're just plummeted with all this stuff that does not translate to the way you felt when you were introduced to death through media, you know? So, yeah. So I, I don't understand why we don't like to talk about death, but we're death denying society and death is a taboo. And I think it's been a taboo for, for, for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yes, going back to the people that work with death, we're looked at oddly. Yeah. Well, you know? one of the embalmers I spoke to said that if anybody asks him what he does for a living, he says he's a teacher. Yes. He's a teacher of, an, of embalming, but he doesn't add that bit because Correct. Yes. that's like a dinner party killer. Oh, yes. You know, at the school gates, you're freaking out the parents. So he just, I'm a teacher. (laughs) Try dating. I started when I, (laughs) when I was dating, I had, (laughs) I, I I told people would be like, oh, so what do you do? And I was like, I'm a funeral director. And they're like, oh, okay. And, (laughs) you know, and then they shy away. And I I really remember when I, I was so proud when I got my license and stuff, I was telling everybody and they look at me and they're like, well, you don't look like a funeral director. And I was like, 
okay, what is a funeral director supposed to look like? I, I was, yeah. I'm like, am I supposed to go get a black hat, put on a black suit and be like, <laughs> you know, grim looking? I don't know. And then when I went to my first industry convention yeah. and it was so interesting because they, everyone left, you know, from the convention and went to the bar and, and, and I still, I didn't know any of these people. And I sat down at the bar and I was talking to some people there and then I said, well, what do you do? And they said, we're funeral directors. I said, Oh my gosh, I'm a funeral director too. And I was like, finally, I have to be amongst them in order for us to have a, a, a conversation that's acceptable, you know? Yeah, I went so. to a convention here in the UK, and uh, it was like that. Suddenly, everybody was, um, you know, they, there was... It, Funeral directors are not what you think they're going to be when you're growing up. You think, you know, they're kind of dour, solemn people. But my experience of them is they're really funny and they're, they're fun to be around. And my, my job as a journalist, I have to interview a lot of actors and famous people for magazine pieces. And I would so much rather be stuck in a bar with a bunch of funeral directors than famous actors. Cause the, that would just be a room of neuroses and ego whether, where there's like, there's a lack of that or an absence of that among funeral directors. It's like they've seen the worst thing that can happen. They've made some kind of peace with it. And now they're just having a drink and having fun. Yeah. And I, I really like, really love that about them. Well, and I think, you know, I always tell people, you know, people always say, oh, funeral directors, you guys are always joking around. And I said, well, you have to understand that we have, we're all human. Okay, and so when we're dealing with death and we're dealing with the families and the emotions that those families are bringing to the table, we will absorb some of that. It's just natural for us to absorb the emotions of others. And so we have to be able to come back into balance of our own emotions so that we can function and be able yeah. to be ready to help the next family and, and, and do it all over again. And so I we, we tend to to try and maintain that balance by being funny and really enjoying life and really embracing life for what it is. Because you're right, we do see that death is very much a part of life. And I think we embrace life more. And that's one of my main missions at the museum is that I want people leaving the museum wanting to live a fuller life because now they know that death does happen and death is very much like the thing next door but you do you you and your people do balance it out by you know you're living at both ends of the spectrum so you have yes. to balance it out by being funny um because if you only went halfway and you were just polite and nice and you know pleasant you're still like down the the sad end um so yeah, it is hugely hugely important. The gallows humor as well, I found just in, you know, everywhere I went. Yeah. It was it was important. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I you know, I just interesting enough I was looking, you know, at some of the chapters that you have in your book, you know. We've been talking all about the funeral director, which is obviously chapter one, which I love. <laughs> 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 you know, starting it right out. Um, but, um, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about the death mass sculpting because, mm -hmm. um, you know, we don't see that anymore. Um, but when I was in funeral directing school, we had to actually make a death mask. Still today, oh, wow. they teach us how to make death masks. And I found it very fascinating <laughs> that they were still teaching this. And I was like, why do 
I understand we're learning the history of our industry, uh, but we don't see that much. But you know, you're over in the UK. Have, have you ever seen it other than being in, in history? Um, so the guy I interviewed for my book is called Nick Reynolds, and um, he's in a band called the Alabama Three, who did the the theme song for The Sopranos. So you you will have heard him playing the harmonica. He's a he's a tall, cool guy in his fifties, and he's also a sculptor. And um, he he does death masks, but he's the only person in the UK who's doing it commercially. Um, so it's not really a thing. And for him, he says it's not really a thing. He does uh, lots. He might do a couple a year. So it's not even a popular thing here. It's kind of... Well, I was asking him why people come to him for death masks, and he said the reasons are all sorts of different ones, mostly um, it, because it does have... Uh, a price tag on it so it is quite it is an expensive thing um so sometimes it's you know rich people doing a rich people thing like they would do like rich victorians would but he was also talking about widows who are getting death masks made of their husbands and and or people getting little um, hand, hands and feet made of, of babies. And he said there's all sorts of different reasons and no one ever has the same one, but it is an un unusual thing. Um, and he kind of uses it in a political way. Um, he was telling me about doing a death mask for a um, someone who was killed in America um, in the, uh, he was by lethal injection. So he turned his death mask into a sculpture that he was taking around the UK, t showing people what the death penalty was actually like in, in America. So he's an artist who has kind of branched out into this thing and somehow he's wound up in within the funeral industry. But he said that he would much rather do life masks of people. He'd much rather do that because he says that there's something missing in a death mask, even though there is some kind of magic. Um, he would love to do life masks. But the thing is that people only call him when the person has died because people only think about trying to capture somebody's likeness like that when they're just about to disappear. So it's like we don't appreciate what we've got until it's literally about to disappear off the earth, um, which I think is sad um, and interesting. But also, if you said you were getting a life mask made of your own face, you'd look kind of like an egotist. So yes. Uh -huh. um, it's a strange, it's a strange thing. And if you said to your, if I said to my dad, can I get a life mask made of your face so I can have it when you're dead? He'd be, he'd go, no, don't be, <laughs> don't be weird. So <laughs> I don't really know how to get around that. He's, it's, but I do find death masks really interesting because with the older ones and i've got a book here that was printed in the 1920s of all these historical death masks and they're all you know some of them are better than others um the really old ones where people have lost their teeth look like you know their lips are disappearing down their throat and there are also the ones where they've had they've got um a bandage tied around their head to keep their jaw in place and that has come out in the death mask the ones that nick does are much more um i want to say lifelike but you know what i mean they're sort of mm -hmm. um yeah. uh they're clearer um 
and and he sculpts the hair he doesn't cast the hair so it looks more realistic and if you cast hair you just end up with like hairy plaster so uh <laughs> he sculpts it so they 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 look a lot different to the old ones and um but there's something in them there's something in a dead face that it, it is kind of magical and that was the whole thing with the victorians they had this idea that if they made this sculpture that it somehow captured the essence of a person like it was a house and yeah. um so interesting enough, you know, I'm in the medical field and I learned that um, I want to say, um, and forgive me if I don't have my facts completely correct, um, but I, I, there was a big plague um, in, I, th- I want to say maybe around London or something. It was back in the day of the plague. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, there was a uh, funeral director, an embalmer, that, you know, they were lining the bodies uh, along the river. Um, the dead bodies um, that had died from the plague and they were trying to do their best to kind of, uh, you know, keep the rat population down because they thought that it was being spread by the rats and stuff. And so in in the midst of it, you know, he was going through the line of the bodies and there was a lady that was laying there, a young girl was laying there uh, and, and about around a, maybe a teenager and she, he said, the beauty of her in her death had astonished him. And he took a death mask of her. He captured her beauty in death. And interesting enough, I learned that that death mask is the one that they used on one of the first resuscitative Annie doll, uh, mannequins in the medical field. It's yeah. her face. She was pulled out of the Seine, I think, in Paris. Thank you. Yes, I just read. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So you, you're familiar with that story as well, yeah? Yeah, she's got a name, but I can't remember it. But I yeah, know. she was yeah. about 15 or something. Because that's another thing that... Um, they they use death masks for they used to take them in the hopes that one day they'd be able to identify that person it was like a yeah. missing persons thing so a, a, a jane or john doe they would take a death mask and go we'll figure this out later yeah but that's um, before they had cameras right exactly. where they could actually take photos now of them and and, and so i want to know think, where those are i uh, love yeah. to see a room of missing person death masks oh yes actually we have a death mask of um Oh, its name is leaving me. It is one of the uh, one of the presidents. We actually have his death mask here. Okay. Yeah, it, it was in a collection that we acquired. So I was like, "Wow, a death mask! I haven't seen one of these ever." <laughs> <laughs> these, these probably exist in some museum curator's back room. If exactly I was in right. Paris, I would have found them. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things that they love, but yet they can't show, right? Exactly. Because uh, you the know, it's stuff. like. <laughs> yes. You, one of those things that I, one of the challenges that I have always um, had to overcome here at the museum is keeping that fine balance of, uh, of showcasing something in a way that is, uh, that I present it in a way that is acceptable to society and not offensive, yet still respecting the dead and honoring those they leave behind. So it's, it's, it's a lot of, of, forward thinking 360 yeah it's a all the way around room. yes it really really is <laughs> it's a challenge very much so so out of all of the chapters you have in your book which one is your favorite i really like the um disaster cleanup people just because i didn't know 
how much was involved. Um, so if you hear about a, nat a natural disaster or, um, or a war or um, a building collapsing, no one really hears about the people who actually have to go and sort it out. You hear that it has been sorted out, but there are. I found a company called Kenyon here in the UK, and you know um, I'm one. I'm actually one of their members. Really? Yes, we have. <laughs> I know the owner. Really? <laughs> crazy small world. Yes. Okay. So little little backstory on Kenyon. Mm -hmm. uh, their building is right next. Used to be right here down the street from me. This is ridiculous. <laughs> I know. And inside their building, we actually had some of our uh, larger vehicles because we didn't have enough space. Uh -huh. So they lent part of their warehouse to us. And so we had to go and, and clean out the warehouse when they started to expand of our museum items. Uh, right. And then... Um, and forgive me, I cannot remember his name, the owner, um, but he moved over to the UK, to Great Britain. Right. He took it overseas and um, used to go to lunch with him. Crazy. <laughs> and, and I actually went to their training. I'm one of their official members huh? as well for disaster relief. And then when they went to the UK, they moved. They kind of kind of went quiet over here. Mm -hmm. And just last year, they started back up. And my husband, who's a pilot, I brought him on board and now him and I both are members. Wow. So if you're, would you be an embalmer on their team or? Mm -hmm. I would be a funeral director and embalmer on their team, um, help to prepare the remains. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is something I had, had never occurred to me. I didn't know that the disaster response team includes so many people, including embalmers. And it's kind of one of those things that's obvious now, of course, you know, embalmers would be sent as well because bodies have to be sent home. But I didn't know that. Um, and I was being introduced to all sorts of people in their London office, people who were, had formerly been firemen, policemen, huge, like high up people in the police in Scotland Yard, you know, hugely organized people with medals and all sorts of things. And the guy I interviewed, Mo, um, Mark Oliver, I don't know if you ever met him. He used to be a hom homicide detective. Oh, wow. Here in London. And um, when he retired, he got a job at Kenyon. They kind of, it was like, he thought he was retired and they pulled him in because he'd, <laughs> he'd, he'd been, um, you know, he helped identify the dead uh, from the mass graves in Kosovo and had oh. worked on various, uh, you know, there was the tsunami in Sri Lanka. And, and so when he retired, they said, well, you're obviously going to get a job here. And so that's who I spoke to. And, um, all of his stories were so fascinating. And, and when I was there, they their warehouse, was, which had all of their embalming tables and vehicles and, and was right near Heathrow because everybody has to be ready to jump on a plane. Um, but the warehouse was full of stuff that had been pulled from Grenfell Tower, which is um, a tower block in London that burned down a few years ago because the cladding or, you know, it was... There was something to do with how the building was constructed and maintained that meant lots of people died and lots of people lost their homes and all of their belongings. And so the, the warehouse was full of things that had been burned and pulled out of the, the building because they were washing everything and returning it to their, mm -hmm. the people. Because I didn't know about that either. Um, most yeah, there's... The, the, uh, and, I, and, I, and he he wrote a book, and I actually have the book. I haven't read it yet, and it's called Personal Effects. Yes. 
Yes. This, do, you have, this, do you have it? I, have, I haven't read it. No, oh. I haven't read it. But the personal effects thing, um, Mo said that the police don't really bother with that kind of thing. So it's something that Kenyon just Kenyon does. does. And, they, and they do it with, with distinct honor. They, they, mm. they, they, they treat it with um, delicacy, uh, respect, you know, because like they say, you know, they'll, they'll uncover a watch. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and that might be the only thing that's left yeah. of that person. And to be able it's to like return that to the, yes, exactly. And to be able to return that to the family, yeah. it's huge. It's, it's, it's it amazing. Was, and it was a warehouse full of stuff like that. And I was looking through the binders of things that had, they'd pulled from the wreckages of planes, you know, like novels that were now fat and bloated because they'd been in the sea. And, um, and the story that really got me was that when they were in the building in this in Grenfell Tower, they found this tank of fish. And somehow, despite the fact that the building had been on fire, the electricity had been off for weeks, there were 27 dead fish in this tank, but seven living ones. And so they took the living fish back to the Kenyan office and they found the people who owned the fish and they said, do you want these guys back? And the family, they were living in some temporary accommodation. They said, we can't take the fish. So a Kenyan worker took them home, looked after them, and somehow they managed to breed. And so they now have a baby fish and they've named him Phoenix, which is just oh. the strangest thing to come out of yes. a burning building, a baby fish. Oh, my God. That just gives me goosebumps. It just goes to show that, um, that there's, there's so many levels in caring for the dead than just the obvious. And there were so many stories, like um, the embalmer I interviewed, uh, not for the chapter on Kenyan, but he was a Kenyan member. Just hearing about embalming bodies in a tent somewhere on an island, and he was talking about how there was one person on the plane who they knew the plane was going down, and he had enough time to write his wife a letter on his shirt because he knew that if, if, if he wrote it on a piece of paper, that would be lost, but at least a shirt had more chance of being found with him. So Kevin, the embalmer, was peeling the shirt off this man and had it returned to his wife. And that is, you know, one of those little... He could have just ripped the shirt off and done his job, but it was one of those hugely important small acts that I kept finding them everywhere. Everyone I spoke to was doing these small little things that no one would notice if they didn't do it. But it would be hugely important if they did. I think that's one of the things that I I profoundly love and appreciate about the profession I am in is that the attention to detail and going above and beyond and actually putting our own emotion into the work that we do because it's like... If this was my loved one, what would be important for me? Mm-hmm. What what was it? What would it? What would I need to continue on? And so it's those little things that we try to think about that might bring comfort or help somebody to get to that next level in grief. When I told people I was writing a book about people who work with death and dead bodies, everyone would go, isn't that depressing? Or isn't that frightening? And I find it reassuring 
to know that there are people out there doing this this kind of stuff because it's I find it reassuring. So people have said to me, should I read this book if I am currently grieving or um, I've had somebody die in the past? Will this gross me out, freak me out? And I can't speak for everybody, but I find the knowledge really, really helpful. So that was the main thing I got from doing all of these interviews and finishing the book that, um, yeah, just that sense that somebody is taking care of it somewhere. There was a funeral director who said that the thing that people always forget when they bring the bag of clothes for their family member to be buried in, they always forget the underwear. And I don't know if that is true. You're nodding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the um, undergarments. <laughs> yes. So he... He kept as standard in his funeral home spare underpants and spare socks because he just couldn't he couldn't bury people half dressed. Um, and I, I love that story. And you know there was uh, I interviewed two elderly grave diggers and um, I spent a day with them in a, a graveyard here in in England and I noticed just before the you know they dug a grave and just before the vicar came to do the ceremony, he tucked this little pot of soil behind the headstone. And I looked in it and I said, what's that for? And he said, oh, it's for the vicar to like throw on the coffin for the ashes to ashes, dust to dust bit. But the soil in the pot was dry and really fine. And the stuff that had come out of the ground, it's England. So it was clay and it was wet and it was heavy. And I said, but it's different. And he He'd been doing this. This guy was in his seventies, and he'd been doing this since he was a teenager. So it had like this pot was old, and it never would have occurred to him to tell me about it because it's he's forgotten it. But he collects in that pot molehills from his garden because the the soil is finer and it lands on the coffin softer. You're not wow. throwing a hunk of clay onto a coffin so that, you know, the noise would... Stuff like noises freaks out grieving people. Of course. You know, but you, you never know what is going to set you off for. Uh, so the fact that he was thinking about something, like that's another, that's another part of his job, but not everyone would do that. Yeah. I'm sure some people would just say, no, use the soil that comes from the ground. But he had, he carries this little pot around with him. It lives in his van, which is covered in mud. And he brings it out every time for the vicar. When people are in that type of an emotional state, the littlest of things can have a huge ripple effect, a profound effect on them that could last them a lifetime. They could go to sleep at night and all they hear is that thunk of that hard clay hitting the casket below you know and 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 that 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 will be their memory and so it's it's very important you know i always tell people when i i'm giving a tour of the embalming lab i don't think they realize the amount of science that we have to study and that goes into learning how to properly prepare a body and which chemicals actually have to be used depending upon the situation of the body and we don't get the cause of death they don't tell us what they died from we have to mm. we look at the body and there are certain things that we have learned to identify and it's through that identification and the condition of the body will tell us what's chemical makeup we need to utilize in order to embalm because if we have somebody who's jaundiced they've had a liver failure and we don't use a jaundice fluid upon them and, and inject them with it we will turn them a formaldehyde gray 
And there's mm. no cosmetic that's going to cover that grayness to that skin tone now. And we only get one shot at this. There's no do-overs. And right. when you make that kind of a mistake that you can't erase, that's going to impact those family members for the rest of their life. You know, so yeah. our job is very important, not only to leave a good impression upon our profession itself, but what do we want, what kind of memory and emotional impact do we want to leave for that family? Yeah, that's something I didn't understand about embalming because I came to embalming from the perspective of I've read uh, Jessica Mitford's book. Oh, yeah. Um, which I just, I love her, but I came in with an opinion mm -hmm. and I had embalmers kind of sigh and say, yeah, but you don't really understand until you've seen it. Um, and getting into an embalming room was the hardest part of this this book um and it should have it should have been hard to get in there i completely understand but there was a lot of like character vetting you know making sure i wasn't strange but watching um watching someone being embalmed was like a magic trick mm -hmm. it was the the one i saw when i walked in it was a really emaciated old man and as they embalmed him over the, the two hours or whatever it was, it was like he aged backwards. And when I looked on his death certificate, he was only in his 40s. But cancer had ravaged him so much that he genuinely looked in his 70s when I came in. But it did make me wonder, like, if you've watched somebody become ill and die, and then and you see them as they just before they die, and then you go to see them at the funeral and they are sort of you know puffed up and looking more like themselves I might find that strange just to go back in time like it had undone something it, he was a much you know he looked so much more like himself um but I still found it a strange thing but the the whole making somebody look like themselves uh was Kevin, the embalmer, was talking about a wife who'd written to him to say thank you because her husband had died in some horrific machine accident and it was a big reconstruction job. And um, she wrote him a letter saying, he wasn't perfect, but you gave him back to me. Mm -hmm. And so I, I began to see that it wasn't, you know, undoing something. It wasn't lying. It wasn't, you know, all of these things that Jessica Mitford had written, there were huge important reasons for it and another thing he was telling me was like you said about the memories yeah. I didn't realize that um you know perfume is so important and um the makeup that they do and you know he was telling me about how they don't really do the the heavy cosmetics here in the UK so it's down to the embalmer and that embalmer might be a guy in his 60s who is looking through an old lady's handbag <laughs> And, um, you know, they're finding the, the lipstick that's mostly, you know, that's nearly empty and the eyeshadow where you can see the silver. Yes, exactly. And they're going, well, these must have been her favorite ones. And they're trying to put together, make her look like she looked. Yes, exactly. Um, playing some kind of detective. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So I loved that. It was much more than just the science. Yes. It was, it was something. Well, else. interesting. I have a personal story that I was involved in is my, my, my very dear friend who's family to me. Um, her brother was, uh, he always traveled to work uh, in, in, in different countries. And this particular time he had traveled to Mexico on, on, for his job. And he died in, uh, as a, from a heart attack. And, you know, she called me to tell me, and it was a Friday, and mm. she said, girlfriend, um, they, uh, we need to get him uh, moved out within 72 hours or they're going to bury him there. And so I, you know, called in all of the people that I knew, and I said, I, I really need your help. You know, this is family, and they they passed away internationally, and uh, we need to expedite and get them back home. Um, and so we found a funeral home in Mexico to get him transferred to. They didn't have refrigeration over there, and it was in the summertime. And they had done an autopsy, and every country does autopsies different. And yeah. so, needless to say, by the time we got him here to Houston, uh, his body wasn't of, in the best conditions. And they said, uh, they called me up and they said, um, we recommend that you, you know, have a closed casket. And I, I said, you don't understand. I said, this family needs to see him. They need to identify and process that, that, that he has passed away. I said, because mm. if they don't, if they just see a box and, he, and it's closed, they're going to have questions. Their, their mind is going to allow them to think that he's going to walk in that door one day. Because he just got on a plane. He just got on a plane. And, and, and they needed to truly see him as best as, you know. So we got, you know, one of the best embalmers that we could find here and called them in and, you know, embalmed him. And thankfully, they restored him as best as possible. And we had a private viewing. And still, of course, you know, his wife, rightfully so, said, this isn't my husband. Of course, she's in death denial. This isn't my husband. Mm -hmm. they, they, they sent the wrong person. This is, they mixed him up. They, uh, you know, mistaken identity. And this is somebody that looks like my husband. And so I finally, you know, I told her, I said, focus on the things you recognize. I said, look at his hairline. Look at the mole on his face. I had to really, you know, kind of snap her out of this thought process she found herself in, trying very hard to, to not believe that this was her husband. But it was very important for me to make her see that it was her husband, as hard as it was. And sometimes that's part of our job is doing that hard work uh, of getting them through that. And then we finally said, okay, we all, you know, it, it was like 20 minutes. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we uh, couldn't stay longer because, you know, you know, he needed to get his, we needed to get him back into refrigeration because the, the fumes, you know, embalming fumes are, you know, they can be quite strong. And so um, we unfortunately couldn't stay very long, but mission was accomplished. I was happy knowing that I was a funeral professional and knowing that I was able to make that type of an impact for this family, knowing that I was able to step in and be there for them when they needed it most and didn't even know they needed it. You know, and I think yeah. that's what's very important. And and I, and I think that so many times people don't realize that everybody has a very special place in caring for the dead, whether they're a crime scene cleanup person or a grave digger, whatever their job is, if it's death related, I think it's important to know that it, every aspect of it is done with the utmost care, respect, honor, and, and it just 
it has to be done. It's a job that has to be done. Why not hand it to the people who I want to say we are destined for it? It, the job chooses us. We don't choose the job. Well, it sounds like uh, I should have interviewed you. From- <laughs> <laughs> you would have been in it if I'd found you out. Oh, well, thank um, you. From hearing all of these people, um, I feel like I've prepared myself. And it's like I've put my own oxygen mask on and I'll be able to help my family. I know my sister will fall apart. My brother will take it in his stride, but my sister will fall apart. And I feel like I'll be able to step in and be the practical person. I'm not a very practical person, but it feels like but when you're needed the most one place, when you're needed the most, yeah. you will be that practical person. And I think that, I think that that is probably one of life's best gifts and lessons is knowing that you can be the one that can be stable for the rest when, when it's needed. Wow. I mean, you know, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> I almost feel like I always I almost feel like you're my twin out there. We have such similar <laughs> thought processes in the in this whole journey of life. Haley, it's been wonderful talking to you and learning about what inspired you to write this book. It's a fascinating book. If you ever wanted to learn more about what goes in to caring for the dead, the professions that go into caring for the dead, or you're interested yourself in being one of those professionals, you definitely have to check out Haley's book. Again, it's going to be available here at the museum, All the Living and the Dead. And I really look forward to hopefully talking to you again, Haley. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me today on this podcast. And I hope that you will share this episode and our future episodes with family and friends. We look forward to any feedback you have to offer by giving us a review on Apple or Spotify. And we hope that you will join us for a virtual tour at www.nmfh.org. And always remember, any day above ground is a good one.